The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. It is common in the world of real estate to speak of starter homes, by which is meant a house or an apartment that you move into, not with a view of staying there long term, but a place that you will live for a while temporarily until you're able to settle into a place that is more lasting, a place where you will live a longer time. That same principle is true in the realm of employment, at least it used to be, I assume it still is, that the first job a person gets is not the job that he anticipates having for the rest of his life, not the job that he looks to retire from, but rather it is a start, it's an introduction into the world of employment as he looks to the opportunity to expand that world and to find a vocation that he settles into at some point. In a similar way, today we are introduced in our study of God's Word to the idea of the beginning of salvation, the start of salvation. More particularly, we're introduced to what we might call a startup Savior, a startup Savior in the person of Samson. Samson is the best known and in many ways the most imposing among the judges of the Israelites during that period that followed their moving into the land of promise and the conquest of that land where they settled and then the monarchy that began hundreds of years later. In that interim period, the period of judges, God raised up a dozen different judges, 13 if you count Deborah together with Barak separately, and he used them to rule the nation, to lead the nation, to serve the nation. And Samson is the last of those dozen judges. And he is by far the most imposing of them. He's the Colossus of the judges. He, he's the Mount Everest of the judges. His exploits are unparalleled and were talked about for generations following him. Indeed, they became legendary. But like all of the other judges of Israel, Samson too was a deeply flawed savior. He, more than any of the others, wasted the potential that God gave to him. His lack of self-control led to disaster after disaster, not, in his, not only in his own life, but also to lost opportunities for the nation that he was leading. Nevertheless, his life is significant. And Hebrews 11.34 in the New Testament names him as one of four Old Testament judges whose faith is worth emulating. Yet as an imperfect Savior, the salvation that he secured for his people was incomplete. And imperfect Saviors who deliver incomplete salvation make us long for the perfect Savior who saves us completely. We will see that as we study the life of Samson. His story is found in the book of Judges, which we have been looking at for the last several months. It's found specifically in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. 
And in those four chapters, when we read them together, we can divide the life of Samson, his ministry, into four specific eras, four specific phases. The first, we see a bright beginning, followed by a marred manhood, followed by a deteriorating devotion, and then finally coming to an excellent end. Today, we're going to look at the first two of those four parts of his life. God willing, next Sunday, we will finish his judgeship by looking at the last two chapters that tell us his story. So take a copy of God's Word, if you would, and open up to Judges chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, it is found on page 213. And I want to encourage you to follow along, not only as I read, but as I then talk about this passage, because we're going to be looking at it. And if you're not familiar with reading a Bible or looking at a Bible, the big numbers on the pages are chapter divisions. The little numbers are verse divisions. And so when I speak of chapter 13, verse 4, look at the big number 13, go down to the little number 4, and you'll know exactly what I am talking about. I want to begin by reading all 25 verses of chapter 13. So you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is to be his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. 
And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manah-Dan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. We see from this beginning of the life of Samson that God blessed him tremendously even before he was born. He is indeed going to be, as we will see, an imperfect Savior of Israel. But as an imperfect Savior, he had an incredibly bright beginning. We see this in the fact that God caused him to be born to faithful parents during very spiritually dark days. In verses 1 and 2, verse 1, we read this refrain again. Again, Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God, again, let enemies dominate them. This time, the Philistines for 40 years. Now, again, this is a part of a recurring theme that we see throughout the study of the book of Judges. The people forget the Lord, and God brings judgment upon them through another empire who comes and imposes its will upon them. But what is missing in this particular occasion of Israel's rebellion against the Lord is there's no lament. There's no crying out to God. There's no even pretense of repentance. We just read, they forgot the Lord and God raised up the Philistines to judge them. It seems that the Israelites have become resigned to being dominated by the Philistines. In fact, as the story unfolds in the next chapters, we will see that the people are indeed at peace with the Philistines ruling over them. The Philistines had settled the coastal regions by the Mediterranean Sea in the land of promise. It was a region that was primarily inhabited by the tribe of Dan. They began to infiltrate that portion of the promised land within one generation after the Israelites had conquered the Canaanite land and moved into it. The policies of the Philistines were not like the policies of some of the other empires that had exerted their will upon the Israelites. They weren't like the Amorites. They weren't like the Amalekites that would just send hordes of soldiers to try to devastate the Israelites. Rather, the Philistines were far more subtle in the way that they sought to overcome the Israelites. They did it by infiltration. They did it through intermarrying with the Israelites. They did it by engaging in commerce and just kind of assimilating the Israelites 
into their own culture and their own way of living. And as I said, the Israelites were pretty content to just let this happen. They were satisfied. Life wasn't all that bad having the Philistines rule over them. In fact, if you were to look at the uh, two chapters over, chapter 15, verses 11 through 13, on one occasion when Samson had killed some Philistines and caused the Philistine lords to be upset with him, they come looking for him to the men of Judah. And the men of Judah, who at one time had been very proud of their relationship with God, being Israelites, separate people for the true and living God, these men of Judah, 3,000 of them, go to Samson and say, what are you doing? Why are you creating so much problems for us with the Philistines? And they actually tie him up and they deliver him over to the Philistines. They were satisfied. They were happy to be canaanized by these Philistine unbelievers. In Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, if you will recall or go back and look at that, you'll see that God says one of the reasons that he allowed many of the enemy nations to remain within the land of Canaan The Israelites moved in. They were supposed to drive them all out, but they didn't. And God says one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that he allowed that situation to continue and exist was so that the Israelites who didn't fight the conquest to move into the land of promise might themselves learn war, learn how to fight as they withstood the enemies of God during the coming generations. And it specifically mentions the lords of the Philistines there in the third chapter, the first three verses. They were supposed to be trained in warfare in order to deal with these enemy forces around them. Yet here we are, chapter 13, the Philistines have taken over, and it seems like rather than fighting against them, the Israelites are okay with that. They're getting on pretty well. Well, the Philistines, they're not upset with that. They kind of like the peace and friendship that they have with this pagan nation. And they're not upset about the worship of the Philistines toward their false god, Dagon. In short, what we see is that the line distinguishing the people of God from the people of the world has been blurred so that it is no longer even recognized. That's the cultural context in which Samson was born. So to find a couple who were dedicated to the true God, who were not given over to the ways of the Philistine, was a rare blessing. And yet God gave parents to Samson who were just that kind of couple. Manoah and his wife, we're told, were childless before the angel of the Lord visited them. They were obviously God-fearing Israelites because they believed the message that the angel of the Lord spoke to them. And not only did they believe it, but they obeyed the instructions he gave to them. After the angel of the Lord left them, they recognized the seriousness of what had just happened. It dawned on them. They had been in the presence of God himself, and they were sinners. And so they reasoned rightly about his holiness and about his grace that could have killed them but kept them alive. Look again at verse 22. 
after the angel of the Lord disappeared in their presence, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. In other words, we're sinners, and we have been in the very presence of the Holy Lord. But then his wife says, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, nor would have shown us all these things and now announced to us such things as these. She realized God is gracious. God is merciful. He's going to preserve our lives. Well, God does show great mercy and grace to Samson by giving him parents who know and trust the Lord. These are days of apostasy when God's people have gone the way of the unbelieving world. Days when God has largely been forgotten among his own people. He's not being honored as the only true and living God by most Israelites. And yet, God in these days puts Samson in a home where he will hear the truth about God, learn the truth about God, be taught to worship the true God from his earliest days. What an incredible blessing. It's a blessing that many of you in this room have as well, right? Some of you young people and children, you ought to stop and think for just a moment. We see the blessing, God putting Samson into a family where he was known and loved and worshipped in days when that wasn't common. And many of you have parents or other influential people in your lives who know and love the true God and from your earliest days have taught you, they're teaching you now, the truth about this true God. He's blessed you. Have you stopped to consider that? Have you stopped to ask yourself, why in the world would God do this to me? Do you realize what a blessing it is to have people in your life who love you enough to try to expose you to and help you come to understand the truth? Truth about God? Tr truth about the world? Truth about yourself? Truth about God's grace and mercy? Salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a sign of God's goodness to you. The, the fact that you're here because somebody or some way God influenced you to be here is indication of God's goodness to you. Why do you think he's good to you? What do you think he's doing? Well, he wants you to know the truth. He wants you to experience the reality that that truth points toward. The reality that there is a God in heaven who has created you for himself to whom one day you will give an account and that unless you're reconciled to that God because of your sins, you'll be separated from him forever under his wrath. He wants you to know that this holy God is also a God of grace who's provided a way of salvation for you. That's incredible. That's kindness. That's mercy. So don't disdain the goodness of God. Don't take it for granted. Don't think that that's a little thing. The fact that God has given you people who care about you, people who are teaching you, showing the truth to you, is his kindness. And you ought to trust him. You ought to be reconciled to him. You ought to honor him for his goodness and turn from your way of living apart from him and look to the provisions that he has made for people like you and me in Jesus Christ, his son, and trust Jesus and call Jesus Lord. Samson had a bright beginning by give, being given faithful parents.
parents. But not only that, we see that he's consecrated to the Lord's service even before he's born. Before he ever saw the light of day in verses 3 through 5. His mother's given careful instructions by this angel of the Lord about her own prenatal care. He tells her, you're going to conceive, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite. And this is how you are to live during the time of pregnancy. No alcoholic drink, no fruit of the vine, no unclean food is to cross your lips. Verse 5, the son's to be raised as a Nazarite, a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, in order to answer that question, you could go to Numbers chapter 6 and look at the first 21 verses where the laws governing the Nazarite vow is set forth. In Numbers chapter 6, what we learn is that there was a special provision made by God for a person to take a vow during a season of his life when he would be particularly dependent upon the Lord, particularly seeking the Lord, asking for God's help, asking for God's strength and power. And during the time of this Nazarite vow, he was to consecrate himself to the Lord specifically and to demonstrate that consecration in three specific ways. First, he was to drink nothing that came from the fruit of the vine, whether alcoholic or non-alcoholic. This was to denote his separation from sensual enjoyments, things that in and of themselves aren't even wrong or bad. But because of his particular devotion, intense consecration to the Lord, he sets them aside during this time of his vow. He is also not to touch a dead body, not even if his mom or dad were to die, not even if his wife were to die. He's to abstain from touching a dead body. It's to demonstrate his separation from even his closest, most intimate relationships because he's wholly consecrated and devoted to the Lord. He wasn't to cut his hair. He was to be separated from looking stylish, separated from any desire to appear attractive to others, to be concerned about how he might come across to others, pleasing others because he was wholly consecrated to the Lord. Nazarite vows were taken in order to set aside a season of your life for intense seeking of the Lord and depending upon him by the restrictions that the angel of the Lord put upon not only the child, but the child's mother, we see that he was actually calling Samson's mom to enter into the way of the Nazarite. But she was to do it for the nine months of her pregnancy. Samson, verse 7 says, was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death consecrated whole life from before he was born to specific service to God. Why? Verse 5 tells us why. Because he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He's going to be a savior. He's going to be one that God raises up to deliver Israel. But notice the salvation that he is to enact is only partial. A partial Savior, a startup Savior, an imperfect Savior. He will make a start in saving Israel from the Philistines. And as the rest of the history of Israel shows in the Old Testament, 
Indeed, the Philistines continued to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites until King David finally was able to disrupt their empire so that only certain cities began to plague them from that time on. Samson's parents are given special revelation of the true Savior. He's blessed because of that. This angel of the Lord comes and reveals the true Savior to them. Look at what it says about this appearance of the angel of the Lord, beginning in verse 3. Who is this guy? Who is this being, this angel of the Lord? Well, as we've seen already in the book of Judges with Gideon, as we see throughout the Old Testament, this is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's what theologians call a theophany, God revelation, a specific purposeful manifestation of the Son of God before the Son of God becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now Manoah doesn't recognize this at first. The man, this angel of the Lord, reveals himself to Manoah's wife first. When she tells her husband about it, he's not sure who this man is. Is it just an angel? Is it just some messenger, some prophet perhaps? And so he prays that God will show him this man again, that the man will come again. And if you look at verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, you'll see in the parenthesis of verse 16, we are told Manoah's misunderstanding or lack of understanding. It says, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And so when he asks him, what's your name? So we can honor you when these things come to pass. Look at what the angel of the Lord says. Verse 18, he says, why do you ask me my name? For it is wonderful. Wonderful. If you were to go and read Isaiah chapter 9, you would see this is one of the names of the Messiah who is to come. What's going on here? God is giving a glimpse, a hint into his true character to this monotheistic nation of Israel that knew There's only one God. He's giving them a little foretaste of the nature of his oneness as Father, Son, and Spirit, that which is more fully revealed in the New Testament. He's coming to this old covenant couple in order to reveal himself to them as the one who alone will save Israel completely, the perfect final Savior. And so when offered a meal, he says, I won't eat with you, but make a burnt offering and put the burnt offering on the rock. So in verse 19, we read that Manoah took a young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. A burnt offering was always offered not to people, but to the true living God of the covenant. The one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. What do they do? They fall on their face to the ground. They worship. And then verse 21 says, Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. When this dawns on him, This is not just another man. This is not a prophet. This is not just any old angel. 
This is God himself in some mysterious way that he didn't have fully figured out, but he recognized that he was in the presence of the Lord. Look at what he says. He says, we will surely die. Why? Verse 22, because we have seen God. Why did Manoah say this? What's going on in his mind? Well, he's thinking theologically. This is very good theology. Very good theology. Because he knew what God said to Moses when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And remember, Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, no man can see my face and live. Manoah knew that. And now he's talked face to face to this angel of the Lord that he recognizes is the Lord. And so his good theology kicks in and he says, we're going to die. We're going to die. That's excellent theology. I'm a sinner. God is holy. I'm in his presence. I'm going to die. And the weight of that just fell upon him, crushed him, affected him emotionally. I wonder, have you ever been affected like that with the thought of being in the presence of the living God? You know, we're so casual today in our thoughts toward God and our approach to God in worship. We're so casual. You know, you just hardly think about it, right? Sunday, got to go to church. Waltz in. Waltz out without stopping to realize we are in the presence of the God of the universe who says nobody sees me and lives. Well, if you've ever felt the weight of that reality that as a sinner who deserves judgment, punishment, condemnation, hell, because you're in the presence of the God who hates sin, who's holy, who can't tolerate sin, if you've ever felt that, you're in good company with Manoah. He felt it too. And he cried out, this is what we deserve. We deserve to die. If you've never felt that way, if that's never weighed upon you, friend, it's because one or two, probably both, Things are true. You've not thought deeply about God. You've not really considered what the Bible says about God. His holiness. His righteousness. His purity. His opposition to everything unholy. Or, perhaps, and, you've not thought seriously about your own sin. Now, what it means to be a creature made for him, by him, in his image, and have rebelled against him. And so your thoughts about God are too low. Probably your thoughts about yourself are too low. And consequently, you read what Manoah went through, and you thought, come on, guy, don't be so serious. Don't be a fanatic. He's not being a fanatic. He's thinking rightly. He's a good theologian. He's reasoning the way he ought to read. Reason. But though Manoah had good theology, his wife has better theology. Better theology. She reasons also the way he does. Not that 
she thinks in any way she's not sinful or not so sinful as Manoah thought. Not that she would conclude that God is any less holy than what Manoah understood him to be. But rather, she recognized that the actions of the angel of the Lord communicate something that gives hope. Hope for mercy. Hope for grace. Hope that there is a way that sinful people can stand in the presence of the holy God and not be destroyed. There's a way of salvation. Listen to her words in verse 23. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. She makes three excellent points as a good theologian. Husbands, if you have a wife who's a good theologian, you have a wonderful gift from God. And you ought to help her to become the best theologian she can be. Manoah's wife helped him here and helps us to understand what's going on. The first point she makes is the Lord has accepted our offering. He's accepted an offering for sin by consuming it with fire. The second point is he's revealed himself to us. He's come to us. Why would he do that if he intended to kill us? The third point, he has told us things about the future. He's made promises to us about what's going to happen. So Manoah's wife is reasoning, yes, it's true, he's holy. Yes, it's true, we're sinful. But look, look, there's a sacrifice. There's an atonement. There's a provision where a holy God can accept sinful people and we don't have to be destroyed. The angel of the Lord caused fire to come from the rock to consume the offering. And then verse 20 says, He himself ascended into the flame up toward heaven. Do you see what this is? Do you see what's going on here? This is a picture of what's going to take place more than a thousand years in the future where a sacrifice of atonement will be made and the Son of God, no longer disembodied or non-incarnate, but the Son of God, incarnate as man, will be offered up and his life will be an atonement and he will be raised up and ascend into heaven, signifying God has accepted the sacrifice. Manoah's wife sees this. She sees it. Not as clearly as you and I can see it because we have the New Testament, but knowing that this is pointing towards something that God has done, is going to do, whereby sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. She believes it. She knows that because of that, they're not going to be destroyed. She's looking through what the Bible calls types and shadows. Anticipations. This is a hint. This is a foretaste of what's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, we look back and see in the full record of the New Testament that which has happened, where Jesus laid his life down on the cross as a burnt offering, a sacrifice for sinners, and God consumed him on the cross, sent his wrath upon him to purge our sins away from us, and then raised him up, signifying everything Jesus did in that atoning sacrifice is acceptable. And by faith, trusting what God's done, people like you and me, like Manoah and his wife, we can be accepted into the presence of the Holy God. That's good news. And if you have never seen that, oh, if you don't get that, I 
pray, I plead with you that today you'll get it. This is your only hope. God is holy. You're not. You ought to die. We all ought to die because of his holiness and our sinfulness. But there's a way of salvation for sinners. And that way is Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus Christ. Friend, trust him now. Why wouldn't you trust him? Why wouldn't you be reconciled to your creator through his provision of a sacrifice of atonement to carry your sins away so that you can be fully welcomed into his family? Trust him. Trust him. How? By doing some ritual? No. By joining the church? No. Trust him how? By where you are, as you are right now, from your heart of hearts, saying, Lord Jesus, I take you as my Savior. Save me. Save me. He'll save you. That's why he came. That's why he revealed himself the way he did to Manoah and his wife thousand years plus before he ever became a man. Samson's parents believed in the Lord. And because of that, Samson was given a bright start, a bright beginning. Consecrated to the Lord from the womb. And verses 24 and 25 say that as he grew up as a child, a young man, the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. He knew the blessing and the power of the Lord. Well, not only does Samson have a bright beginning, the next two chapters, chapters 14 and 15, go on to show that as an imperfect Savior, Samson has a marred manhood. His manhood is checkered. His manhood is marred by sin and by self-centeredness. Let me just read the first three verses of chapter 14. Follow along with me. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah was a city in the borders of Israel. And yet it was a city of Israel that had been now largely infiltrated, taken over by the Philistines. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, among the, our, all of our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? You see what they're thinking. They get it. They're not our people. They're not God's people. Why are you going to pagans but samson said to his father get her for me for she is right in my eyes now this is the first of three occasions that we're going to see samson in his adult life make a ruin make a mess because of his lack of sexual control because he let his sexual appetites get out of control three occasions Three different women where devastation came because Samson lacked self-control. This is also the first hint we're given into the double-mindedness that we see of Samson. He picks a Philistine woman for his wife. Now, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal 
because God specifically said in his law that his old covenant people were to marry within the old covenant relationships. They were not to marry foreign women. Exodus chapter 34, verses 15 and 16, specifically spells this out. Samson would have known this, and yet he rejected it. His own parents said, this is not right. Why why are you doing this? They didn't want him to marry outside the faith. He goes against their counsel. He will not budge in his demand to have this woman. Look at verse 3 again, the end. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, sometimes people will read the Bible who don't understand it very well, and they'll see what it says about the Israelites not being allowed to intermarry. They'll say, see there, the Bible teaches that uh, there's not to be any kind of uh, interracial marriages. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Not at all. What the Bible teaches is there's not to be any interfaith marriages for the people of God. The people of God are to marry within the bounds of the people of God. The Apostle Paul spells this out clearly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to what he says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he says to widows who want to remarry, they can remarry only in the Lord. Samson knew that God had specifically forbidden him to marry a Philistine woman. But he did so anyway. Why? Why would this man so blessed with such a bright beginning, why would he marry contrary to the way God had commanded that he marry? We're told two times in the text, verse 3 and again in verse 7, because she was right in his eyes. I like what I see. I want what I want. And that's the problem. In fact, that's been the major problem of Israel throughout the whole time of the Judges. As we'll see in future studies, it's reiterated as we've seen in previous studies. Chapter 17, verse 6. Chapter 21, verse 25, we're told, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Huh. This makes sense to me. This is what I want. I'm just going to do this because it's right in my eyes. Samson here is a tragic example of the way that far too many Christians rationalize their own decisions. Brothers and sisters, if you've been a Christian very long at all, you know other Christians who have come to a point where they said, well, you know, I'm going to do this. I prayed about it. I prayed about it. And I'm going to do this. When this is a direct contradiction to what the Word says. Well, the Lord led me. The Lord's leading me. I prayed. It's what I think is right. When the Word says no, not right. It's wrong. Maybe you've done it yourself. Maybe you have seen something that you just wanted. Seems right. And the Word of God says no. 
and yet you've convinced yourself because it seems right to you, you ought to do it. Here's a fact that we ought to all remind each other of regularly. When God's word specifically commands something to be done or forbids something from being done, you don't have to pray about it, okay? Save time. Spare God. (laughs) When God says it, you can understand that's the answer to whatever you might want to pray because his will is always right. Samson's problem, which is too often our own problem, is that he wanted what he wanted regardless of what God says. Though in God's eyes it was wrong, in his eyes it was right. Now verse 4 tells us that God overruled Samson's sinful actions and desires. Look at verse 4. His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord when he said, I want this woman. I want this Philistine woman as my wife. They were distressed because they're faithful to God. They didn't know this was God working. The text goes on to say, For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So the Philistines have infiltrated the Israelites. They're exerting their will upon the Israelites. And God's looking for an opportunity to begin to separate them again, to make a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. Israelites have acquiesced, intermingled with the Philistines, so that there's no longer a distinction between the two anymore. And that was contrary to God's specifically revealed will for the Israelites. They were to be a separate people, a people reserved for him to live according to his revealed will. So the Lord determines to use Samson's sinful desires in wanting a Philistine woman as his wife. He does so so that he can begin to make a distinction once again between Philistines and Israelites. Well, here's another wonderful example, clear example of the exercise of God's sovereignty in a world that is filled with sin. Here is an illustration of what theologians call the doctrine of providence, how God rules and overrules in everything in the world to accomplish his eternal purposes. Though Samson is completely responsible for violating God's revealed will, the text says that his doing so was from the Lord. You see that? In other words, what Samson did sinfully was the outworking of God's ordained will. Now, brothers and sisters, you may not understand this. That's okay. It's hard to understand. But we must accept this because it's revealed to us. And if you find yourself struggling with the concept that God could ordain something that is sinful and wicked, so that he overrules wicked actions to accomplish good eternal purposes. If you struggle with that, let me encourage you to do something. I want you to start meditating on the death of Jesus Christ and listen to what the Word says about what took place on the cross. Was that death God's will? No. Thou shalt not murder, right? They murdered him sinfully. They lied about him. 
violated what God's clearly revealed will is. Was that death God's will? Yes. Because he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And Paul tells us, Romans 8, 32, he, God, delivered him up. He, God, did not spare him. Romans 3, 25, God set him forth. One in the same event, the death of Jesus violated his revealed will, fulfilled his ordained will, his secret will. How can these things be? Well, I don't know how they can be, but they're revealed. That's what God says. And we need to come to recognize this is the way he rules his world. This is what's true. This is what his word teaches us. This is this incredible, wonderful, life-giving doctrine of providence. Well, after he convinces his dad that this is the woman he wants, they have to go through the customs of the day in order to prepare for the actual wedding ceremony. So they go down to Timnah, verses 5 through 9, tells us of an incident that takes place that Samson's probably uh, most famously known for. So let's read it, where he kills a lion in the power of the Spirit. Verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked to the woman with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hand, and he went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother, and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now again, this is another one of those examples that we have in the story of Samson of supernatural power, strength coming upon him by the Spirit of God. Things that couldn't be accomplished normally, but the Spirit of God enabled him to accomplish. And then we keep reading verse 10. We see that when he goes down for the wedding party to Timnah, that the Philistines... Seeing him, beginning to hear things about him, think we need at least 30 guys to be a part of the party here to, with one Samson. And so he sets up a riddle, and he makes a bet with that wedding party. Verses 10 through 14. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. Evidently, this was customary to tell riddles and to place little wagers in the preparation for the wedding uh, of the customs of that day. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linens of garment and 30 changes of clothes. That was an expensive bet. 30 linen garments were expensive. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Well, he's got them, right? Nobody's going to figure out this riddle. He hadn't even told his mom and dad. And he knows what he's talking about. Nobody else could possibly know what he's talking about. But when we keep reading, we see that his bride nags him to death for the answer. She does so out of fear, fear which in the next chapter will be vindicated because the people she was afraid of ultimately did burn her to death. But in verse 15, look what it says. On the fourth day, 
They said to Samson's wife, the guys who'd made the bet, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people. You've not told me what it is. He said, behold, I'm not told my father and my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Now, Samson's response here tells us something about his personality. I kind of like it, actually. It's somewhat playful, somewhat smart aleck. If you'd not played with my heifer, plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And he says, you know, I, I, know what you, I know how you got this. I know how you got this. So what does he do, though? He leaves in a huff, and he goes down to another Philistine city, and he makes other Philistines pay for his bet, and he does it by killing them. And again, the text tells us it's in the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Well, it's hard at this point in Samson's life to see how this guy bears any characteristics of healthy leadership, much less to view him as any kind of savior, even an imperfect savior, a startup savior. Next week, we're going to see, God willing, more of how he begins to save Israel from the Philistines. But in chapters 13 and 14, the character flaws that are going to be his ultimate downfall are already manifesting themselves in him as a young man. He had such a promising hope. He had such a bright beginning, yet through a lack of self-control, he squandered opportunities that God gave to him. In that sense, Samson's life serves as a warning to us all. Brothers and sisters, have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible, especially the New Testament, we are admonished to get and develop and exercise self-control? Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into, left without walls. You can have everything else in your life. No self-control, you're going to be easy fodder for the prey. Galatians 5, 23 tells us that self-control is a fruit of God's Spirit. It's that which He works in us. If you lack self-control, you need to deal with God. It's a spiritual problem. That's where we need to take it up. We need to work in our lives to come before God and to recognize our weakness and to plead with Him for the Spirit to work this grace in us more and more. Samson's lack of self-control brought disaster on him and others. But in another sense, his life serves as a special warning to young people and to single adults. So listen to me specifically if you're a young person or a single adult. Don't let what is right in your eyes trump what is right in God's eyes. Now, that's true for everybody in every area of life, but we see it in Samson particularly being important when you're considering a life's mate. Men, Scripture says 
Charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. So if you are simply looking for someone who turns your head and you let your heart go after the one who turns your head, you're setting yourself up foolishly to live a life that could be disastrous. It's the same thing, ladies, for you. Charm and good looks will fade away, but a man who is wholly devoted to the Lord is worth marrying. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, resolve to marry only in the Lord, to heed God's will and revelation of this. Now, why does God tell Christians to only marry in the Lord? Is he just trying to limit the field of your prospects? Is God just concerned to somehow make your life miserable because he's not opening up a whole world of options to you? No. It's because he knows if you are a real Christian, then your greatest devotion is to the one who shed his blood for you. And if you try to bring into the most intimate relationship of your life, that realm of oneness, someone who doesn't have that, then you're not going to be able to relate at the very deepest level of your existence. Why does God instruct us this way? Because his ways are not only right, they're good. They're good. They are what is best for us. Think about it for a moment. What did Samson have in common with this Philistine woman? They spoke different languages. They worshipped different gods. He was a Nazarite, consecrated to God. She was a Philistine, worshipping the false god, Dagon. The only thing they had in common was that he was really smitten with her. She was right in his eyes, and she was kind of flattered by the fact that he was smitten. That's what they had going for them. And what was the consequence? Betrayal, strife, discord, bloodshed. Brothers and sisters, there are always inevitable tragic consequences of living on the basis of what is right in our own eyes. Where God has spoken, God's people must heed. His ways are not only right, they're good. They're good. They're good for us. He has guaranteed that truth by sending His own Son into the world. The one who surpasses all imperfect saviors, who is the only perfect Savior, whose salvation is complete, not lacking anything. And when Jesus came into the world, the Scripture says, He came to magnify God's law and make it honorable. To show us its rightness and its goodness. And by living in accordance with that law, He guarantees us that all of the promises of God are yes, amen, true, in him. And in Jesus Christ, we have every assurance that the God who's revealed his will to us in his word intends to do good for us. So follow him, heed him, live for him, trust him, being confident that as you seek to obey him in faith, he will be your God, providing everything necessary, everything good for your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for Samson. What a checkered life. But thank you for recording it in Scripture. Help us to live by faith in you, the true and living God alone, and to heal.
heed what your word says. Deliver us from doing what's right in our eyes when your word speaks clearly contrary to our opinions. We need your help for this. In Jesus' name.